If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're not sure where 1 Peter is, go ahead and start at the back at Revelation and, and, and turn to the left, and you will slowly find um, Jude, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then 1st and 2nd Peter. So 1st Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 17. So we're in this series on what we're just calling the, the church and the state. Um, <clears throat> my heart for these four sermons is for us to understand how we as followers of Jesus are to live in this world specifically with regard to governing authorities. Um, as I said last week, I am, don't want to tell you who to vote for. Uh, I don't want to tell you what party you're supposed to align with. I just want us to understand what it means for us as Christians to live in this world. Because our identity as followers of Jesus is the most important thing about us, and that influences everything else that we do and say. So how do we, as followers of Jesus, live in this world and specifically live under the governing authorities? So I want to stick to Scripture there's a lot of stuff that I was thinking, you know, we could nuance things all over the place. Um, and so much of this is hopefully going to spark good discussion amongst us. But I just want to say hopefully what Scripture says, um, and then we will talk more. Um, so when you're given a, a new identity or you're placed in a new place, sometimes it takes some time to know exactly how to act. Some of you have experienced being, being an immigrant, uh, coming to a new country. And, and there's a period of time where you're trying to figure out how do I live and exist in this new place. Maybe you take a new job. You're in a, a new place of employment, and you have to figure out what are the rules of this place? How do people interact? Um, what do I need to learn? How are things done here? Maybe you are in the same workplace, but you receive a promotion. You kind of get the, a new title. And then you have to figure out, well, how do I relate to people now that I'm sort of over them and What's the uniqueness of how I relate? Um, kids, maybe you've been in a situation where everything is new. There's, there's new people around you, and it's a new place and, and sort of new everything. And you have to figure out what are the rules and, and what do I do and what do I not do? And as Peter is writing the book of, of, of 1 Peter, writing this letter, he's letting those that he's writing to who are followers of Christ know that how who they are as new creations in him changes how they are to live in this world in the different relationships that they have. So they are new people. How does that affect the way that they live in the world? And for us this morning, we're going to zero in on a part of Peter's letter where he helps us to understand how we who are transformed by Christ, how do we live in earthly governments and institutions? How does the fact that we are Christians and followers of Jesus change the way that we think about the governing authorities. So here's our big idea. Peter is trying to show us this. Who we are as God's people determines our purpose and practice in this earthly kingdom. Okay, so who we are as God's people, who we are as Christians, who we are as God's people determines our purpose and our practice in this earthly kingdom, in in all different ways, but specifically this morning thinking about governing authorities. So if you are a follower of Jesus, that status as a, as a child of God, as a Christian, is what determines how you live in every and all circumstances. 
So you are not primarily defined by the job that you have. Often when people say, you know, tell me something about yourself, that's where we begin. Well, here's what I do. That's not your primary identity. You're not defined by your family name. You're not defined by the country you were born in. Uh, your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your family history, these are all very important. But the most important part of who you are and the most important thing that you that about you is found in the understanding of who you are as a person redeemed by Jesus and called to live under his lordship. That's the most important thing about us. And this is also what determines our place and the role that we play in any government that we live under. So again, who we are as God's people determines our purpose and our practice in this earthly kingdom. So I want to jump right into 1 Peter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. And see what we find there. So 1 Peter 2, and we're going to read verses 11 to 17. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We're going to think on these verses. If you look at them, there's probably a break between 11 and 12 and then 13 to 17. 11 through 12 is kind of a main big idea that, that Peter is then going to work out in the following verses. But we're going to think first, if our big idea is who we are as, as God's people determines our purpose and our practice in this earthly kingdom, let's think about who we are. Okay, So that's our first point you might say who we are so peter describes if you were to read and hopefully maybe you did um first peter 2 and you read verses 4 through 10 peter has this long description of who we are as follower of jesus followers of jesus who god has made us and he says a lot of things uh, he includes the ideas that we are chosen and precious that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house that we are a, a holy priesthood and a chosen race a holy nation, a people for God's own possession who have received mercy from him and therefore are his. So if, if we are those who have come to Jesus in faith, trusting in his death and his resurrection for our salvation, then we are completely changed. We are totally different as individuals and as the church, as his gathered community of people. Uh, individually and corporately, we are uniquely God's people, and God's possession. We, we are his. Peter's going to say later on in verse 16, he's going to talk about us living as servants of God. That we are free and we are people who are servants of God. So in Christ we, we are free. We are free from all authority. Any authority over us, we are, we are free from that. We are free uh, from sin's authority, from Satan's authority, from the world's authority. And we are servants of of Jesus. It's an interesting dichotomy. He says, live as free people, and then he says, live as servants of God. 
So who are we? I think the first big idea that Peter would have us take is that we are free servants, which is sort of a, a unique way to think about it. We are free servants. We're free from everything, and yet we are servants of Christ. This is what Jesus says. Jesus tells us um, that we will know the truth, and what will the truth do? It will set you free. It will set us free. And Galatians 5 says that Christ has set us free from the yoke of the sin of sin and the law. And then Romans 6 tells us that we were once slaves to sin. But then it doesn't it says that we have been set free so that we can become slaves to righteousness. It's this amazing thing that God does in us. We are free from the authority of sin and now we are free to live under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus calls us into righteousness. So we're now servants of Christ. We are servants of of righteousness. We are in this unique place of being wonderfully free and also joyfully enslaved to Christ. We are free servants. That's your identity as a Christian. So the status of belonging to Christ in his kingdom and being his free servants also makes us, in the words of verse 11, it makes us sojourners and exiles. You can pick one of those words. So we have this idea of being free servants. The next one I would say, I'd just pick exiles. We are exiles. Um, it's, it's this status as strangers and exiles. And this is key for Peter. He begins the whole book by saying he's writing to the elect exiles is what he calls them. These were folks who were literally scattered all around, um, some of them displaced from their homeland. And so they were exiles. But Peter also wants them to know that they will be exiles wherever they live, even if they live in their home country, that they are exiles because that's not their true home. Because we, we live in a world that's enslaved to the world and the flesh and the devil, and because we are now servants of Jesus and he is our master, we live as those that are longing for a different land, a land where Christ is king. Before Christ, we were comfortable in this world. We were fine with it. But as we grow closer and closer to Jesus, we get restless with where we live. We long for our true home. We get a little bit homesick for a place that we've never been. We're reminded of the patriarchs. Remember, we just studied these guys. You think about Jacob and and Joseph who went and dwelt in Egypt. But where did they want to be? They wanted to be in Canaan. They wanted to be in the promised land. They were exiles in Egypt, longing for their true home. Of course, our home isn't a a physical place. Um, It isn't the land of Canaan. And even for them, it wasn't the land of Canaan, was it? Was Abraham really longing for Canaan? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us this, Hebrews 11, 13. These all died in faith, speaking about the patriarchs, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that what? They were strangers and exiles on the earth. All the way back then. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Canaan, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's our desire, isn't it? So there's more to who we are as Christians, but I think Peter zeroing in on a couple things. One is that we are free servants. We are under the lordship of Jesus. And the other is that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. So it's then out of those two ideas that we could think more on, but we'll, we'll move on from it. It's out of this idea that you are a free servant and out of this idea that you are an exile, that then he's going to explain how this description of our identity motivates what we do and how we live and, and what we say in this world. So our purpose and our practice 
flow from who we are as free servants and exiles in this world. So we thought about who we are. Let's think about our, our purpose and practice. That's the second big idea, our purpose and practice. So if you look at verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. So as sojourners and exiles, we are to abstain. We are to refrain and withdraw from the passions of the flesh that are waging war against our souls. These things that we've been set free from. Since we are free servants who are looking for a better country, we reject the passions and the sins of this world. Who we are determines our practice, and that practice to abstain, the, the practice is to abstain from the sins of the flesh, to refrain from allegiance to this world, because it's not really our home. So that's, that's the practice, but, but who we are also de- determines our purpose. It's, it's our goal. And Peter tells us, in part, why do we do that? Why, why do Christians want to say no to sin? Why, why do we do that? He tells us in verse 12, at least one of the reasons, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The, the way that we live is not done in private. It's done before others. It's done before a, a watching world, before the Gentiles and all those who are apart from God, not a part of his family or, or his kingdom. So we represent God in this world. We, we image him. We show him to others. And we are called to live with honor in a way that reflects the, the holiness and the righteousness of God. And we live in light of the day of visitation, this day when Jesus is going to return and judge all people. And as we live in this way, our hope is that not only will we glorify Christ, but that others would see the way that we live, and they in turn too would turn and glorify Jesus. So our practice is, is to abstain from the flesh, and the purpose of doing that is so that others would see our good works and glorify God in heaven. Notice this, our, our good deeds are not a means of saving us, but they are the witness to others that we have been saved and transformed. Our good deeds are, are done for the glory of God and through the strength that he gives us. Jesus is the only one who has ever lived a life that was perfectly good and filled with good deeds. And our salvation is is rooted in him. And now as his children, we want to walk like him for his glory and so that others might see that we have been changed and therefore they desire to glorify him as well. So bring it all together, okay? Who are we? We are, serv- we are free servants and we are exiles in this world. And how should we live as such? What will our practice be? Well, we're going to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And, and why should we do that? What's the purpose of doing that? so that the watching world will see the way that we live and come to glorify God along with us. So now, flowing from verses 11 and 12, Peter's going to apply this to specific situations. And he begins with governing authorities in verses 13 through 17. If you want to read the rest of it, he talks about uh, servants and masters. Then he talks about husbands and wives. Then he talks about relationships within the church. How does this big idea about who we are and our purpose and practice work out in these different relationships? But we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 and how we relate to governing authorities in light of these truths. 
So he begins in verses 13 and 14 by saying that we are to be subject to every human institution. Be subject, submit to every human institution. Emperors, governors, submit to them. Now, given who Peter has just said that we are, that we are free servants of Christ, and that we are exiles in this world, doesn't it seem surprising that he would say, live in submission to the governing authorities? He just made it clear that we are not servants of this world. We are servants of, of Christ. We're not residents of this world. We are exiles. We are sojourners. So why should we be subject to every human institution, including emperors and governors? Why would we do that? And the answer is in verse 13. Be subject. Why? For the Lord's sake. It's, it's for the Lord's sake. So here we go back to last week, which I won't preach that sermon again, but Romans 13. Romans 13, the reason that we were reminded that, that all authority is from God. Therefore, to obey or disobey the authorities that God has put in place is to disobey or obey God. And the state has been given the authority to reward or to punish those who obey or disobey. So we are subject. Are we subject for their sake? No. We're subject for the Lord's sake because he is the ultimate authority that has put them in place. So as we said last week, our subjection to human institutions is ultimately a subjection to God. When we subject ourselves to the governing authorities, we do it as free servants of God who recognize that he has placed these authorities over us for our good. I find it encouraging that Peter and Paul both believe this. They both teach this. Now, if just Paul said it, it's God's word. If he's the only guy that says it, I believe it. But it's just encouraging to me that both of these guys together say the same thing. You don't have one who's a revolutionary saying revolt against the government and the other saying, no, just submit to him. They're both saying it. I find it encouraging that Peter says these things too. I think about Peter's history. Do you remember Peter in the garden when they came to take Jesus by force? What does Peter do? He whips out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear to try to stop them from taking Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Peter, (laughs) calm down. He says, no more of this. Put away your sword. And Peter's also the guy in Acts 4, remember? When they tell him, you have to stop talking about Jesus, what does Peter say? You can tell us, you can, you can decide for yourself if it's right for me to obey you or right for me to obey God, but we are going to keep preaching in the name of Jesus even though you told us not to. So Peter's kind of a guy that's been there, done that with governing authorities. And I appreciate that in the midst of all of that, he still says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to the governing authorities. But then we see Peter kind of goes a different direction. So Romans 13 gives the reason. It says, here's why you should submit to governing authorities. And the answer is is more about the question of why in terms of the grounds. Like, why should we obey governing authorities? What is the what is the reason that we should do that? Um, here's what he says. You know, here's why it's right to submit to governing authorities. But Peter kind of goes around and, and he it's less about the grounds and it's more about the purpose. Why do you do, is there, there's a greater purpose at work here when we submit to government authorities. Yes, it's right because they are instituted by God. But then he starts answering a different why question. And you see the purpose coming out in verses 15 and 16. So look at 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So as we are able to subject ourselves to the governing authorities and do what is good, 
Peter tells us that our good deeds will silence the ignorance of foolish people. So the early church was subjected to many false accusations. We we read that they were accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters, and yet they were married. We hear that they were accused of cannibalism because they had this whole ceremony where they ate flesh and drank blood with the Lord's Supper. And, and beyond misunderstandings, those are just some, in some ways, misunderstandings. But beyond those, followers of Christ throughout history have been accused of evil. Uh, we're said to be uncompassionate. We are hateful. We are self-righteous. We are narrow-minded. We're backwards and stubborn and puritanical and racist and, and more. And sometimes, if we're honest, the church has been all of those things. Okay. But many times we're not, and we are falsely accused because of the ignorance and foolishness of others. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? <laughs> eh, people are just ignorant and foolish. That's why they say that about us. It does sound harsh. But the, in actuality, it's not harsh because we would say that about ourselves before Christ opened our eyes to the truth. We were all ignorant and foolish. You can go back to chapter 1, verse 14 of this same book, and Peter talks about our former ignorance. We were all ignorant apart from Christ. And the only reason that that we understand now is because God has opened our eyes. None of us naturally understands God's God's will and, and his ways. And so we shouldn't be surprised in some ways when the world looks at the way that we act and the way that we think, and they think it's foolish. Because apart from Jesus... I would think it's foolish too. So what's the solution to these accusations? What's the solution to the ignorance of foolish people who speak against us? I'll tell you what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, this is the will of God, that by shouting louder than them, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He doesn't say, this is the will of God, that by telling people how ignorant and foolish they are, you should put to silence the ignorance and the foolish of People who accuse you of these things. What's the solution? What do you see there? Do good. The way we silence people who tell us that we are ignorant and foolish and and that our being ignorant and foolish is that we do good. The way to silence our accusers, those who would accuse us of evil, is to continue to do good. Now, this surely would have to do with obeying governing authorities, I think. But I think it goes beyond that to any way that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, any way that we would show the love of Christ in word or in deed to others is a doing of good. I think this is good for us to see because we we rightly emphasize that we are not saved by good works okay that is totally true but in that we can't neglect the truth that we have also been saved for good works these good works do not merit our salvation but our salvation means that we will do good we're not called to be good that's not what jesus says to us he doesn't point us and say be good he says i'm good i will make you good and then out of that he says Now, out of who I have made you to be and my spirit in you, do good. Do good in this world. And we're reminded that we will be recognized by the fruit of the love 
of Jesus in us, seen through good works. Isn't it so good to read Matthew 5? Uh, that, that people would see the light that we shine and they would glorify our Father in heaven. So the other way to silence our accusers is not only to do good, but to not do evil. Now that just sort of makes sense, I guess. But do good, but also don't do evil. That's verse 16. Um, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It's, this verse seems to address the idea that people could say, well, I'm a, I'm a servant of God and therefore I'm free, so I don't have to listen to the, the governing authorities. Our, our freedom in Christ can't be used as a cover-up for evil, uh, a rebellious spirit that doesn't want to submit themselves to Christ and therefore to, to governing authorities. But that doesn't silent, uh, silence others. If we say, well, we're going to do whatever we want because we're free in Christ, that doesn't silence others. It, it gives them all the more reason to accuse us of rebellion and, and, and wickedness. So we live as servants of God who submit to his authority by submitting to the governing authorities, and thereby we silence those who would accuse us of evil or defame God because we are rebellious and wicked and evil. Now, so the doing of good in verse 15 and, and the living of honest lives in service to Christ in verse 16, I think all goes back to verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the goal, the reason that we do good and the reason that we don't unnecessarily rebel against governing authorities is so that people would see our good deeds and glorify God. What's the ultimate purpose? The glory of God. We're reminded that our great goal for living lives of holiness is to glorify God. We are subject to governing authorities not because they are inst- not only because they are instituted by God, but also so that we might glorify God and draw others to glorify Him. So let's summarize again. Who are we? We are free servants, and we are exiles and sojourners in this world. How should we live as such? What should our practice be? We are to do good and refrain from evil. And why would we do that? What's the purpose? So that the world will look at us and by his grace come to glorify God as well. So whatever place we live, whatever nation that might be, we live as sojourners and exiles, and we're most concerned with serving God. We, we, our great goal is just to be able to do good and, and to see people drawn into God's kingdom. Our, we want the freedom to be able to do that, and we will take the consequences of living as God's children if we have to live in conflict with governing authorities, because that's what we do, and Jesus is king. In fact, Peter is going to later address the issue of suffering and what happens when you submit in the midst of suffering. In other words, we, we, as we seek to live out who we are in Christ in these different realms, it's not always going to be easy. There might be suffering. Look at this, First Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Not usually many people, right? But then it says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Easy or not, we can submit to God and do good and glorify him. And in doing that, we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, who suffered for doing good.
Now, I think behind all of this, then, we can go to 1 Timothy 2. So start turning to 1 Timothy 2. To the left a little bit more. 1 Timothy 2. I won't take as long with this, I promise. But 1 Timothy 2, then, we have this command that I think is so helpful as in our understanding of, of the governing authorities. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So just walk through that real quick with me. Paul calls us to pray for all people, specifically to pray for kings and all who are in authority. And what are we praying for? We are praying that we would be allowed to lead peaceful, quiet lives that are godly and dignified. We want to live at peace, and we want to be free to do good as God has called us to. And what does Paul say about the goal? He says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Because he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What's the connection between this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior? The connection between this freedom to live peaceful, godly lives and God's desire for everyone to be saved. I think it's what Peter is saying, that if we are allowed to do good, not only does it silence our accusers, but we, it causes them to be drawn to Jesus for salvation. Now, I want to make some connections, but before I do that, know that we're going to go two places in the next two weeks. One is I want us to think about how we respond to the moral and ethical issues in our day as followers of Jesus. There are issues that we are concerned with as followers of Jesus. Um, and then the governing authorities have influence over those things. So what are we called to do? How do, how do we interact with that? And the second thing is I want to think about what it means to do good. Are there specific ways that God has called us to do good in this society as Christians. So that's where we're going to go in two weeks. Having said that, that we will address those ideas. I want us to pause and just realize Scripture's understanding and instructions about the governing authorities is so simple. It is not complicated, I don't think, at all. We are called to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because their authority is from God. And by submitting to them, we glorify God and we draw others to him. Are there exceptions? Yes. If the governing authorities tell us to do something that is in direct conflict with the authority of Jesus and what he's commanded, we don't do it. And we also have our conscience that may call us to speak out against authorities. But it would seem from these three passages that we've studied that our, our great concern should be for the glory of God and for the basic freedom to follow him and just do what he's asked us to do. The the New Testament does not call for the establishing of some sort of theocracy where God is king. Israel lived in a government, if you want to call it that, where God was king. And as God's people, we live with God as our king. And we want all people to live with God as our king. But the goal of God's people is not for the government to say God is king. That's not our ultimate goal. In fact, I think history would tell us that if when the government starts to establish religion, it almost always leads to oppression and corruption of that religion. 
the beauty of the freedom of religion is that it recognizes that no one can be forced or coerced into any kind of belief. We don't think that anyone can be forced to be a Christian. You can't force someone to put their faith in Christ. And the danger of desiring what we might call a Christian nation is thinking that we can force or coerce people into submitting to Jesus. Now, when I say Christian nation, that, that can mean a lot of different things to people. But I'm thinking a nation where we say the Bible is the authority and, and people need to submit to Jesus. That would be that would cause problems. We can't coerce people into becoming Christians. So let me take maybe a controversial issue. It's not as big a deal anymore, probably. I mean, many people don't think about it. But something like, like prayer in schools. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds great. That, that, that the government would say we should pray before school. But it only sounds good to us if people are praying to our God in the name of Jesus, right? That's, that's what I want. Um, do we want to force other people to pray to our God in the name of Jesus, even if they would deny his existence completely? Do I want to force someone to do that? No. Do I want someone to force me to pray to another God? No way. Of course not. What we want, though, is the freedom to worship God and to do good as individuals and as his church. We want all people to have that freedom. We agree with the First Amendment that Congress should make no laws concerning the establishment of religion, our religion or any religion. I think there's a temptation for us to want the government to be more than it should be. But I think Paul and Peter remind us that that what we want the government to do is to allow us to be who God has called us to be as followers of Jesus. God's plan for getting glory for himself and drawing worshipers to him is not by establishing a Christian government. It is through the faithful witness of God's people. It's through the church that he calls worshipers to himself. And I would say this, your faithful witness in this world, in word and in deed, and the faithful witness of our church and all the, of the true churches in this world in word and deed is more effective in bringing change and true change and worship to Jesus than any vote you could ever cast, uh, than any law that could ever be passed, than any government in this world. It's the church and it's God's people living godly lives in the way that God has called us to. That's how God builds his kingdom on earth. Amen. I've been thinking about Paul's words, Philippians 4. And he tells us, he's talking about how he's learned to be content in any situation, whether in, in plenty or um, in, in want. If I've got everything I could ask for or nothing that I could ask for, I can be content. And I just was thinking about an application for that. Can we, can we be content if we are simply in the government that we live in, if we're just allowed to do what God has called us to do? I think that's in some ways what, what, what Paul and Peter would say to us. That, that we would be content if we can just, if we can just, if we can pray, if we can gather together, if we can tell people about Jesus, if we can do good in this world, that we will be content. If they want to make churches tax exempt, great. If they want to take it away, that's fine. Just let me talk about Jesus and pray and gather with my fellow believers. If you want us to pray at a public gathering, We'll do it. If you say you're not allowed to do that, fine, just let me pray in my house, and I want to pray in my church. These are the things that are important to us. Now, 
are, are there other things to consider? Yes, I can nuance a lot of stuff, like I said. But we live as free servants and exiles, and we are called to do good and draw others to faith in Christ. If we can do that, let's be content in many ways. Again, next week we'll think about how do we interact with some of these social and ethical issues that are important. We need to think about that. But as far as the government goes, we are free in many ways. And Peter summarizes it in verse 17 of, of, of 1 Peter 2 with four commands. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. We are to show respect and honor to all people regardless of who they are, what they look like, what political party they are in, or any other means that might divide us. We respect and we honor everyone. No exceptions. Honor everyone Love the brotherhood. The, not just honor the brotherhood, love the brotherhood. We have a, a, a call to honor everyone, but we have a unique call if we are God's people to love the family of God, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a unique fellowship that we are called into, and our deepest connection is not with those who we might agree with politically. It's with those who agree that Jesus is Lord. That's who we love. We are connected with them in a deep way. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and God alone. We revere and we worship God alone. We fear God alone. We don't fear the government. They can do whatever they want. Do they want to kill us? Fine, do it. Because we don't fear the one that can kill the body. We fear the one who determines the eternal state of our souls. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God honor the emperor we honor the government and those that are placed in authority over us just as we would honor all people now why does he he's already said honor everyone why does he say honor the emperor i think because to use our words politicians and those in governing authorities become they become inhuman to us they become some sort of entity and we feel like we can dishonor them without recognizing that, that they are people. And the emperor thought he was a god, but he was just a, a, a man with feet of clay like, like all of us. And so are our leaders. And we need to honor them. You know, if we would do this as Christians in our political environment currently, if we would honor the emperor, honor the leaders, won't that be something unique? Won't that be a city on a hill? Because sadly, there are many Christians who are not doing this. I read a quote, a tweet, maybe we should get rid of Twitter, by a, by a guy who calls himself a Christian leader. This is what he said. <coughs> Obama's dad dumped him at birth and his mom got rid of him at age 10. Did they know something we didn't when we signed up for this guy? That is ridiculous. It is unchristian. I could preach an entire sermon by, about how ridiculous and unchristian that statement is. We do not talk like that. That's ridiculous. We treat all people, including the government, no matter how faceless we may think they are, we treat them with respect. We honor the president, whoever is elected, whoever is the president now, and whoever is the president on whatever day he, gets, he or she gets sworn in, we respect and we honor them as servants put in place by God. I hope I've sparked a lot of discussion, and I hope we continue to discuss this.
But let me give you some questions to keep us thinking and applying these things. I'll end with these questions, okay? Is your identity rooted in your nation or in your status as a free servant of Christ and an exile longing for God's kingdom? Do you long more for an idealized America of some kind or for God's perfect reign in the future? Now, patriotism is not wrong for any country, but our greatest allegiance is to King Jesus and his kingdom, right? Are we more concerned with the morality of others than we are with our own? We are called to be good, to live lives of holiness and purity that would silence all of our accusers. But we, do we spend more energy accusing other people of sin than seeking to do good ourselves? Do we rejoice that we, do, do we rejoice in this? We should rejoice in this, I should say. Do we rejoice that in the vast majority of situations in this country, we have the freedom to live a peaceful and quiet life that is godly and dignified in every way. That is a gift. And it's, it's because people pray for that, that we have it. Do we rejoice that we have that in the vast majority of situations? Yes, there are circumstances where that may, someone may come up against that. For the most part, though, it is not true. And in light of that, do we pray for those who lack that freedom? I think we complain more in our nation than some other places where it's much harder. But do we pray for those who can't lead a peaceful, godly life that's godly and dignified in every way? Do we pray for those nations that God would make that such? And then one final question, do we complain more than we pray? I think about that call in 1 Timothy to pray for these things. Do we pray about it? Or do we just complain? I listened to Sinclair Ferguson talking about some of these things. And he said, we may live in, I'm, I'm, this is not a direct quote, but he said, we may live in the most complaining generation ever that is also the most prayerless generation ever. If we're going to complain, and if we feel like complaining, let's take that energy and pray instead. And so I invite you, Let's pray together. Lord God, again, I pray that if what I've said is my opinion, that you would help us to make that right. But Lord, it would seem that, that you call us to think more about our allegiance to you and our faithfulness to you and doing good in your name than anything else. Lord, we thank you that we're we're sitting here right now and we have no threat upon us of anyone coming in here and telling us that the government has told us that we are not allowed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we are allowed to do so much good in this world. And even beyond that, we are blessed in so many different ways. We pray for those, Lord, that are persecuted even now, that today they met in secret because if their government knew that they were talking about Jesus, they could be put in prison or killed. And though we pray that you would allow them to live a peaceful and quiet life, to be godly and dignified. Lord, make us people that do good. Help us as a church to focus so strongly on doing good in this world, on, on seeking the good of others, and that, Lord, because of that, you would be drawing people to yourself.
they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. It would help us not to complain, to pause and to pray, to be thankful, and then to ask you to, to change things in, in the ways that we see the need. Lord, we, we want to be those that honor everyone. Lord, we pray that you would build a deep love amongst us. We pray that we would be those who honor even government institutions. Lord, and we pray that we would fear you and we would worship you alone. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.